Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is John McEwen a co-founder of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, the String Wizard, as he's been dubbed affectionately. Perhaps the most important element contributing to the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's rise in stature, both commercially and creatively, was moving to Colorado from Los Angeles back in 1971. Welcome, John. Thank you. Like I said to my mom, thanks for having me. <laughs> Let's go ahead and set the table a little bit. You were a Southern California boy growing up in the 50s and 60s. The cliche is that everyone in our generation saw the Beatles perform on the Ed Sullivan Show, picked up a guitar, and formed a band. I was born into folk music, yeah. acoustic music. At a time when you heard the Doors and Stones and Beatles on the radio, I was trying to play the freight trains and the acoustic guitar. <laughs> Six months into that, when I was 17 and a half, I saw a group that I had no idea who they were. They were called the Dillards. And my life changed. I got into bluegrass and the five-string banjo and never looked back. <laughs> Went out to change the world five strings at a time. I was in four different groups first. One was just my brother and I playing bars and stuff around Southern California, doing Jimmy Martin music and Carter family songs and Flatt and Scruggs songs, old Hank Williams. Well, all Hank Williams songs are old. That was one thing. And then a folk group that was kind of like a Christy Minstrel knockoff where everybody was playing guitars and nobody knew how to play lead. And they're singing about some guy rowing a boat to a shore. It just took forever. You don't know, why is he going to the shore? And I didn't like folk music of that nature. Michael, row the boat ashore. So that lasted a few months. And then I started playing with Les Thompson. We got a bluegrass group together called the Wilmore City Moonshiners. And it was basically a Dillard clone, except it weren't any good. <laughs> that lasted about eight months. Then I started playing with Michael Martin Murphy, only he was Michael Murphy. He hadn't added the Martin yet because, well, the actor wasn't getting famous. He was afraid the actor, Michael Murphy, would get confused with him, so he put his middle name in there. I did that for maybe five months in a group called the Texas Twosome. His partner was from Texas, and I wasn't. So Texas Twosome... Of course, the publicity pictures didn't have me in them. And the one TV show we did, some Linkletter TV show. John, you know, I'm really glad we're here, but they told me they don't have enough money to have all four of us on camera. So me and the bass player had to play two feet off camera. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I figured out I'm done here. They a few did. months later, Les Thompson called me and said, hey, there's a new band getting together at McCabe's Guitar Shop, which is where the whole thing started for me in Long Beach. Not the McCabe's in Santa Monica, but the extension in Long Beach. And that was Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. It was so different, G. It was not a bunch of guys that knew anything at this time. Les was 17. I was 20. Jeff Hanna was 18. I think Fadden was 17 or 18. And one of the other guys was 18. And had there been several iterations of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band before your joining? No. Jackson Brown played about five shows. And for 50 years, Jeff and Jimmy, Jackson Brown was in the band. But it's not fair. It's not on his website. He never talks about it unless he's standing in front of one of them. And as soon as Dr. My Eyes was on the radio, they started saying that. He played five folk clubs, maybe four. No money, no credit, no photos. It didn't record. That lasted two months. 
And one night, his last gig, I was also playing with a dirt band. We did Truthful Parson Brown together. That's when I first was melting in. Because everybody knew each other. We were the outcasts trying to be cast. And the folk clubs were happening. And you'd see Mary McCaslin and maybe Hoyt Axton was there. And so people would go see him. And Jackson came in to this little dressing room at the Paradox in Orange, California. Hey, John, listen to this song. And I said, that's really neat. Where'd you get that? He goes, I just made it up. I said, well, where'd you get the words? He says, I wrote them. <laughs> what about that weird chord? How come you're not fretting, you're making an F and having the first string open? He goes, I thought it sounded better, F major seven. And it was, well, I've been out walking these days. It was these days. Well, I've been out walking. I don't do that much talking these days. I was the first guy to hear it. He went out on stage that night and played it, and people loved it. Jackson's been a good guy to know all these years. I always felt the group's first band was the one that made the first album. Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's essential start, it was two guys that lasted about a year and a half, Ralph Barr and Bruce Kunkel, and then Jimmy Fadden, Jeff Hanna, Les Thompson, and me. I kind of brought the bluegrass edge into it, and 30s music and the jug band stuff. We were influenced heavily by the Jim Queskin jug band, and Gid Tanner, the Skillet Liquors, and various jug band ensembles. Jeff was an Ian and Sylvia fan, and folk music, which was really cool. Jimmy was a Brownie McGee, Sonny Terry fan, and a harmonica savant, you might say. He was playing great from the first week. Les played mandolin and washed tub bass. You guys straddled a myriad of different styles. Kind of the spinal tap of folk music. <laughs> you had a massive hit. Mr. Bojangles. Mr. Bojangles. Mr. Bojangles. Legend has it that it was the San Fernando earthquake in 71 that I might have officially called the Northridge earthquake. Was that the event that spooked you California natives into relocating to Colorado? We were on the road doing what we could because we were starting to promote the Uncle Charlie album, which was the fifth album we made for United Artists. And that's the one that had some of Shelley's blues and Kenny Loggins' first songs to ever be recorded, four of those, House of Pooh Corner being the hit, and Bojangles. When the Northridge earthquake happened, we couldn't reach home. Two days, no phones. We got back off the road, and it was time to go. And we'd been playing Colorado. And, oh, man, what a wake-up that was to what a wonderful world is out there as far as a place to live that's different. The first place we played here was Tulagi, a book by Chuck Morris. And when he moved on a little further, he got to Marvelous Marv's, and we played there. And while we were playing at Marv's, there was a man named Danny Wardwell that kept saying, you got to come play this ski area town. It's called Aspen. It's like, you know, we're from L.A., a ski town. No, our career's not over yet. We didn't know. So we played Aspen, and then we started playing it as much as we could. You know, we do 10-day runs. Steve Martin would be opening because my brother was managing him by then. And you just fell in love with Colorado, not just the people but the space, the area. And we would play Aspen and sell out the club every night, two shows a night usually. 
we were the first national act to play there, somebody that had a record on the radio. And it was a big deal. It was fun. Any restaurant you could go into that first time there, free dinners. Hey, you guys, come eat here. Tell people about it on stage. I went to the guy, his name was Whip Jones, I believe, that ran Aspen Highlands. This is the third time we played there. The place holds about 300 people. And I says, uh, Mr. Jones, I'd like to give you a dirt band show, and you can do whatever you want with it, whatever. Your employees, giveaway. And I says, how much is that going to cost? I said, two years of season passes for 16 people. <laughs> And four comps a day when we're working here. And he said yes. <laughs> so we started skiing more and more. It was a tough schedule. You'd finish around 1.30 in the morning and be up at 7 having breakfast to hit the slope. <laughs> Not bad. Let's talk about the seminal recording of Will the Circle Be Unbroken. That three-record set is in the Library of Congress, and I don't think it's hyperbole to say that it changed the direction of popular music. Changed the direction of many lives. Classical violinist told me over the years, I heard that album and I quit playing classical and started trying to figure out Vassar Clements. <laughs> I was into heavy metal and I heard Doc Watson and I bought me an acoustic guitar. I just got back from Vietnam and that made me feel at home. It's a three record set. I've heard more than once. Do you know how hard it is to divide a three record set when you get divorced? <laughs> and it's also in the Grammy Hall of Fame. Your brother, William McEwen, kind of an unsung hero in our local music scene, managing the Dirt Band, producing several of your early albums. He was the one who outlined the plans to record this selection of traditional country musicians. He's um, the one that made it happen. The trigger was at Tulagi in Boulder. Pretty much. Prior to that, in 1970, October, Earl Scruggs came to see the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band at Vanderbilt University, our first play in Nashville. I couldn't believe that Earl Scruggs was coming. He came backstage before the show. His whole family was there. And I said, Earl, I just got to ask, why are you here? <laughs> you know? And he said, I wanted to meet the boy who played Randy Lynn Rag the way I intended to. I'd never forgotten that. That's like getting communion from the Pope. had done something right. He heard it on the Uncle Charlie album. It was just quite a shock to me. So we got to know each other over the phones over the next six months, and he's playing Tulagi for a week. Prior to him playing that week in June, I'd gone to meet Doc Watson three months earlier in L.A. He was playing a gig out there, and I wanted to meet him. There's too many people around. I didn't want to be a handshake and goodbye, whatever. So I met his son and spent time with Merle Watson. And I told Merle... Earl's playing in Colorado in a couple months, and I'm going to ask him if he'll record with the Dirt Band. And I want to know, do you think your dad would want to? Oh, Daddy needs this. The folk music thing is dying down, and the crowds are getting smaller. Yeah, let me know what happens. So first week in June, I'm taking Earl back to the hotel in Boulder every night, and I finally get up the nerve to ask him, well, well get a, uh, Earl, uh, Earl uh, would you, do you mind, would you think, uh, would you consider recording with... Uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and he said, I'd be proud to. Oh, my God. A week later, Doc was playing there, and I went up to Merle and said, Earl said yes. Oh, I got to introduce you to Daddy. Yeah. 
The band didn't know this was going on. Jeff Hanna told me a few years back, if I had known what was coming together, I probably would have said no. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, put Doc on the phone that night with my brother. They talked for 15 minutes, and that was locked in. The next week, Earl, um, yeah, we're going to try and schedule a date. Looks like maybe second week of August. Oh, that sounds fine. Uh, And Earl, uh, do you think you could ask Maybell Carter (laughs) if she'd do a couple songs with us? Oh, sure. And, and Jimmy Martin, because Jimmy Martin, he put the color in bluegrass, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> he, he found Vassar Clemens. And eight weeks after I asked Earl that question, we started recording. Five days later, we'd finished 34 songs, all done two-track on quarter-inch tape at 30 inches per second. Bill was adamant about recording high level. We had a 16-track set up for the first song, but why are we recording 16 tracks? We're going to lose a generation, and there's nothing to mix, really. This music can mix itself if you record it properly, like they did in the old days. So we went, dumped the 16 and went to two only. And Bill, having the foresight that he had for many things, ran a tape at three and three quarters the whole time to pick up the talking in between songs. And that gave the album its heart. You could hear Jimmy Martin say, Earl never did do that when I made a mistake on the banjo, you know. Yeah, that's where I first got acquainted with the music. Is that right? I didn't play professionally until the early 60s. The early 60s? Early 60s. Earl was obviously your liaison to this generation of, of players. But what was the vibe at the very beginning? Some of those guys Where? had to be skeptical of you long hairs. Maybell right? had no problem. Maybell was everybody's mother, Maybell Carter. She accepted everybody. Oh, I long to see him and regret the dark Vassar just liked to play music. He looked like a Georgia cop, but he didn't care. Jimmy Martin was ready to do anything that would help his career, so that didn't matter. of introduction was helped by the fact that their kids had introduced them to the Uncle Charlie album. The music on Uncle Charlie was a broad spectrum, and a lot of it being bluegrass or country traditional based. So that made them comfortable. It was Acuff that said in the Nashville Tennessean the day after we met him, Mr. Acuff, what did you think about meeting the band? I don't know if them nitty gritty boys or boys or young men or what, they're all covered with hair. And we saved him for the last day, and he came in rather skeptical looking. But after he listened to four cuts in the studio, he said, well, hell, ain't nothing but country music. Let's go make some more. He jumped right in, and he was a staunch Republican. Vietnam was raging. Robert Kennedy had been shot just a few years earlier. It was 1971. Churches were burning and marches and all that stuff going on. Yet when we got in the studio, there were no politics. 
There was no animosities. Everybody was there to make music, pushed us to the edge. Were there preconceptions within the band? Sitting around McCabe's guitar shop in Long Beach prior to the group even starting, there was a coffee table. It was surrounded by records from the Appalachians and Kentucky, Tennessee. It was the music we were trying to learn. We'll never meet Doc Watson, but let me see if I can figure out Black Mountain Rag. We'll never meet any of the Carter family, but let's learn this song. The preconceptions we had since Easy Rider had recently been out uh, but that attitude was more like, are they going to accept us? But I had a banjo. I wasn't worried. I'd already experienced using my banjo trick on the road a lot. I kept my driver's license in my banjo case in the trunk of the car. When the band started, I became road manager because I was the only one old enough to rent a car. So I did that for 10 years. And I had to drive fast sometimes. And I'd get pulled over sometimes. <laughs> Oh, my license is in the trunk of my car. Here I am in Virginia, South Carolina, or Georgia or something. I would take my driver's license out of the banjo case, and the policeman would say, Oh, you play the five-string? You play banjo? You know uh, Foggy Mountain Breakdown on that thing? That kind of experience with a banjo and just what it does to people usually makes them happy. And I was playing bluegrass. The only uncomfortable part was Jimmy Martin was such a master and the best bluegrass singer I was worried about that. I wanted to live up to his expectations. I don't know if he had expectations. The confidence I had in Jeff and Ibbotson being able to sing harmonies was total. They knew how to sing together like brothers. Everybody jumped in. Everybody in the band had to learn a whole bunch of stuff. I was the one that didn't have to learn much because I knew most of Jimmy Martin's material. And the Carter family material, I bought the album in 64, Songs of the Famous Carter Family by Flatten Scruggs. And now I was using all that information, so that was easy. But overall, the first thing we found out on the first day was these people were such big fans of each other that put us at ease. We were just there. They were recording an album with a bunch of people that had been on the radio. That gave us some credibility. But on top of it, Maybell Carter saying, Oh, Merle, it's so good to meet you and, and pick with you. I'm so glad we're recording together. And Roy Acuff would say, oh, Maybell, it's good to be making a record with you after all these years. So we were watching the thing unfold. Each one of the individual artists were asked, give us four songs of your own that you want to record within this configuration, and we'll start with those. And it's all there. We weren't telling them what to do. We were asking them what their favorite songs were. And then we would add, what well, we want to do, I saw the light with everybody. We picked it up after dark, I know that, but let's try to stay with it. Johnny? Johnny, can I? Is that microphone near close enough to Doc or did he get moved away? Uh, yeah, I moved him in and he's going to move in on this break. Okay. Nobody had an objection to that. 
Anyway, that's kind of how the attitude was. I was always charmed that there was a get for them as well. The album turned out to be their first gold records of their careers, right? Me, Bill Carter, I took it to her house. I had Marty Stewart drive me because I didn't know where it was. And Maybell, um, I want to give you this. It's a gold record for the Circle album. It sold over 500,000 copies. And she said, well, I didn't think that many people even heard these old songs of mine. Marty said she really meant it. She never got it that she reached so many people. She's glad to hear about it. Back in Colorado, you were an entrenched part of our musical community. You were recording up at Caribou Ranch and other area studios. For my money, Ripplin' Waters is the quintessential Colorado song. What's your memory of Jimmy Ibbotson presenting that song to the band? He played it, and it sounded perfect. Not saccharine, not trying to sound like somebody. He wasn't trying to write a James Taylor song about Colorado. He wrote his song about Colorado. We convinced him, after much discussion, to edit out one of the verses about drinking beer all day and letting it go in the backyard. <laughs> that, would have, that would have changed things. It, 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 it just, it's such a sweet song. And all of a sudden, the guy's taking a leak. It just doesn't... Ibby went along with it, and we recorded it in, I believe, Applewood in the Golden area, and it was really fun. I would say it was one of the first times we felt like we were really creating a piece of art rather than just a nice piece of music because it was transcending to us at the time. And his voice is what really made it happen, too. When Jim Ibbotson sings a line, you feel like he's sitting across the table singing it to you. It seemed like a Steve Goodman type of guy that would do that. And very few people have that ability. I don't know if it's a talent or what. It just happens to some people. Can we circle back to your teenage pal, Steve Martin? <laughs> at 16 years old, I was trying to get a job at the Magic Shop in Disneyland. So was Steve Martin. He's already working in Disneyland. He started at 11 years old selling guidebooks and worked his way up to being stock boy in Adventureland. But we were hanging around the Magic Shop as many hours as we could, trying to convince him, let us pitch tricks. Not together necessarily, but sometimes together. We'd run into each other. Our first time we ate together was a lunch. After hanging out at the magic shop, we had a tuna sandwich in Tomorrowland. And I just thought that was so weird. In retrospect, I didn't think it was weird then, but here's this guy that I really liked that was different. And I ended up the next year in high school, senior year of Garden Grove, and we were there together. We played chess every lunch period. Steve was never chatty. And the only thing we said was check, checkmate, or adjusting. I never really did adjust, but on the chessboard, I would adjust occasionally. At the end of the year, it was something like 85 to 87, and neither one of us remember who was ahead. But he was funny then. He was doing those morning announcements, like Amos and Andy routines with another guy. Hey, uh, I'll meet you at the store, okay? Uh, uh, if you get there first, draw a blue line on the wall, and if I get there first, I'll erase it. That kind of stuff. He was a cheerleader wearing a pink tutu. He's coming up with cheers like Bobo Skawatin Dot. Okay, the opposing team's off there, and you, everybody's going, Bobo Skawatin Dot, Bobo Skawatin Dot. And they're going, what the hell are they saying? 
we got the jobs in the magic shop. On a bad week, we'd only work 50 hours. On a good week, we'd be able to do 60 or 70. One week, I did 92 hours, which was really fun. You're pitching tricks all day long. The crowd turns over every 20 minutes. When you mess up, you could, don't know, next. Music came in sometime towards the end of the senior year. I started playing guitar. And then that summer, we discovered the five-string banjo in the living room of my parents' house where I was living because my brother had his friend that owned McCabe's Guitar Shop. He knew four songs on the banjo, like Jesse James and Ballad of Jed Clampett, but he didn't really know them. He knew them much more than anybody I'd ever seen. And I can remember to this day, Steve, looking at him, knowing he owns a music store, saying, so uh, how much is a good, used, cheap banjo? <laughs> Steve was always known to be thrifty from day one. So we got banjos. I could pick things off records faster than him. So the next year, the normal practice would be we put in our full day at the magic shop around 1 a.m. He'd come over and stop by my house on the way to his, and I'd show him a new lick that I just picked up. He'd try out a new line, just dumb stuff. What do you think of this? We already had lines in the magic shop that we'd use, old comedy lines, traditional comedy. She made fun of my apartment, so I knocked her flat like that. <laughs> We'd like to introduce you to Rover, the world's smartest mathematical dog. Rover, what's two plus two? Roo, 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 roo. Come on, boy, one more. <laughs> it was really fun. I don't think there was a bad day working in Disneyland. Steve and I have talked about that before, about how that gave us so much that we didn't know we were being given. Sarcasm with a sense of humor in it. As we got out of the magic shop and into music, a bunch of years had to go by, not too many, but an incredible thing that became apparent then is I'm in the middle of a generation that is from 16 to 22 years old. They're all making new music. And as you look back on it, you had the Jefferson Airplane, the Birds, the Buffalo Springfield, Kenny Loggins was 18 when I first recorded him, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Steve Martin. And one time he said, I got to quit writing. There's just too much censoring going on. I'm not getting as many parts as I thought. He was writing for Smothers Brothers and then Glenn Campbell and then Sonny and Cher in the late 60s, making fantastic money. I said, how can you quit a $1,500 a week job to go out on your own when you don't have any? He said, yeah, I know, I've only got eight minutes of material. But he wanted to be solo. He had the nerve to do it. He was trying to find a space to make people laugh where there wasn't really a punchline. He says, what I'm after is that type of laugh that you get when your friends are hanging around the kitchen or somewhere, and you're laughing, and you keep laughing, and you forgot why. And he found it. I knew when he first said, I dream of a land where all men are free, and some women. You know, there's no punchline there. And you had to think about it. And he could time it so right when they got it, he's on the top of the next one. It was so much fun to watch that develop. My brother recorded him for several years. It took him three years to get a record deal. But the first album did a million and a half units. Second one, two and a half. Third one, three. And interestingly, the banjo, a staple of his stand-up career. A serious staple, by the way. He wasn't just frivolously playing the banjo. He wanted to play it right. Well, I'm rambling, 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 
Uncut, his novelty hit that paid homage to the Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun. Sucked the off 70s. the fame might be a better way to put it. <laughs> okay. A traveling exhibit of this boy king's treasures. It was touring the U.S. and yeah. attracted millions of visitors. So Steve came up with King Tut, backed by the Toot Uncommons, who were members of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Steve was playing Vegas, opening for Ann Margaret, I believe. And we were playing the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in L.A., and he came in to the dressing room and says, hey, I want you guys to see if you can do this song. The bass needs to go like, dun, 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 dun. And I'll sing a line. And after I sing a line, you go, tut, tut. And then you go, king, tut. When I was a young man, I had to see him. King, tut. Bought me a museum. King, tut. And we learned it in the dressing room. Took it out on stage for the first time in front of 2,000 people at the Dorothy Chandler. And <laughs> Steve was already the hot local favorite because he came from L.A. And people knew and believed and wanted him to do well. And so just having him there was a cool thing. When he came out and did that, he blew the room away. It was just nuts. We almost had to do it twice, but we didn't. So my brother, being his manager and producer, we were in Aspen the next week. Thank you, Colorado, again. And we got together to play that. Brian Savage played the sax. He was in the group Starwood. Bill cut the record and mixed it in about nine hours that day and tried to get Warner Brothers to release it as a single. Oh, the comedy singles aren't going to... We're not going to release that as a single. So he made 25 acetates. Back in the day, you could knock those out pretty easy. But they were only good for about maybe 15 or 20 plays. But he sent them to the number one stations in the country, BCN in Boston, Quixie in Atlanta, LS in Chicago. They got it on the charts. They were playing it. And in the third week, it had reached the top 20. And they start calling Warner Brothers. Hey, how many singles have you sold? Well, we don't have that out as a single. What are you, nuts? They finally put it out, and it did a million and a half units. (laughs) (laughs) That was exciting. And then we did it on Saturday Night Live with them. Steve Martin moved to Aspen about two years after we did, maybe a year and a half, and (laughs) he had a cat named Dr. Forbes, and he spent some time up there, but the cold and the dryness, ever since I met Steve, he was using chapstick. (laughs) (laughs) Not belittling him, but he always had the chapstick. He had to get a four-foot chapstick when he got to Aspen. He was there for a while. The Nitty Gritty Dirt Band was the first American group to go to Russia, which was quite an honor. We played 28 sold-out shows in five cities. Had a couple of pop hits, An American Dream, Make a Little Magic. We recorded American Dream in Golden, and Linda Ronstadt was in town, and Jeff called her up and got her to sing harmony. And then had a renaissance in the 80s as a country band. You had a slew of top 10 country hits, and Colorado Christmas, the Steve Goodman composition, still a staple around the holidays here. But all along the Rockies, you can't feel it in the air. 
By the end of the 70s, my brother was tired of managing the Dirt Band. Steve's career was taken off. The Dirt Band was dragging down on the constant haranguing and arguing that he would get involved in. Whatever the reason, we needed a new manager. I said, there's only one guy, I think, that can handle this group and do it good, and that's Chuck Morris. He gets the personalities. We worked with him a lot. Well, let's call him up. Chuck Morris was very excited about the proposition, but he said, Johnny, are you going to be in the band? I said, yeah, I'll stay in it if five things happen. Change it from dirt band back to nitty-gritty dirt band because it was a waste of time to change the name. I didn't vote for that. I voted against it. Well, everybody calls us the dirt band, so let's just call it the dirt band. Okay, well, 10 years of marketing thrown out the window. Where do you file the damned album in the record store? I said, change it back to nitty-gritty dirt band. Jim Ibbotson has to be in the group, and we need to record Dance Little Gene because we've been doing it on the road together, just the two of us, and people react like it's a hit already. We have to play country music, not want to be rock and roll with a bunch of other players that are handling the rock of the roll, and we need to record in Nashville with a Nashville record company. I can get that done. Okay, I'm in. So then he went and told Jeff and Jimmy, and at this time now Bob Carpenter, and he got a deal with Warner Brothers. The temperature was right for the dirt band. We weren't too old yet. Coming to Nashville with the good reputation we had, fortunately, the bad luck wasn't noticed as much, and we started recording with a Nashville producer. When Norbert Putnam did the album that had Dance Little Jean on it, and he understood that music, acoustic, good drums, etc. So that helped bring the 20 country hits of various levels. Can we play celebrated 50 years of dirt with the dirt band and that seemed like the right time to move on <laughs> <laughs> for me yes there have been many factors 50 ways to leave a lover 100 ways to leave a dirt band you know and <laughs> i left in the 90s because i just couldn't get anything done they never played any of my music except one song learned in 1966 that was very discouraging I said, come on, okay, you guys got to sing. So I'd put things on an album, but it was usually a solo instrumental, or I'd get Al Garth to play a song with me, or somebody else to back me on something, Vassar Clements, and that would get on the album. album as a band. It wouldn't be the group. We never spent more than four minutes trying to work up a piece of my music. <laughs> so that was tough. I lived with that, but I accepted it. Okay, I'll make my own albums. 
So when I put together and remastered Will the Circle Be Unbroken, it became obvious it was time to be back in the group. Jeff and I always had a great way of getting along, sometimes by not talking, and sometimes by doing a good interview or a show and not talking. In fact, I said to him once on the bus a couple years ago, isn't it weird how there's some things that we just don't talk about? He goes, yeah, yeah. And so we agreed on that. We agreed to disagree. <laughs> so from 2001 until 2018, the group only recorded two albums. I felt like it was an abuse of the privilege that you have of being able to do this. There's so many people that just want to make a record. And then there's so many people that make a record that want to have an audience. And there's so many people that have an audience that want to make a record with some stuff the audience likes. You know, there's different levels. But to make nothing, two albums in 15 years is not productive. I wanted to finish the end of the 50th year because that was an important thing for me to do that. And at the end of the last date, I left. The irony to me is that you have made 40 albums over the course of your career, participated in them collectively. No, more like 50, but go ahead. Well, okay, we'll round up. 34 of those albums are Dirt Band albums, and I produced another eight and then made about six of my own of various types with moderate levels of success, but great recognition and always good reviews, so I'm proud of that. And you might have reached your apex with your most recent album, Made in Brooklyn. Made in Brooklyn especially... I tried to get the band involved in this record, but the record company president, after talking to Jeff Hanna, says, I hope I never have to talk to that guy again. So there, Jeff never called him back. And so I said, okay, Norm, here's the album I wanted to make anyway. Norm Chesky went along with it for Chesky Records, and they put out 400 albums, usually considered to be the best sounding records in the business. They record with one microphone, no headphones, no monitors, with the idea that if you can't hear the guy playing lead, then you must be playing too loud. Don't overshadow. This microphone will hear everything. It will hear a chair creak on the other side of the room. I just believed them, because I really fought to try and get headphones, because I like headphones. No, we just can't do headphones. It'll pick up the headphones. The guy with the drum kit, we had to move him around a couple times to get the right spot. But when you play Miner's Night Out, and everybody is playing into the one mic, and the drum sound is perfect. It's not nine mics on the drums that have to be mixed. most remarkable audiophile recordings of it recent It got memory. Stereophile Magazine Record of the Month. Yeah, amazing And work. I'm not bragging because it was a shock to me. I'm going, oh, thank heavens, somebody <laughs> likes it, you know? People can read about all this and more in your new book, The Life I've Picked. That's a great title, by the way. It took two years to get the title. I have five pages of sucko titles, <laughs> on and off the dirt road, stuff like that, whatever. And it's true, it is The Life I Picked. At 18 years old, I wanted to get on the road and do stuff. And the rest is hysteria. History. <laughs> Tell me your favorite musician's joke. I use this almost every show when I'm going in for sound check. You want to befriend the sound crew. So I say, hey, you guys, uh, you hear what the roadie said to the bass player? No, what? He said, hey, do you think the bass is too loud? And the bass player said, fine, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization, relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org.